And we are thinking together from Scripture about how the sovereign God sanctifies his saints through suffering. It's the heart's desire of every disciple of Jesus Christ to be more and more like Jesus Christ. And that is a desire that God will fulfill. And the way he does it is through suffering. That was his pattern with the Son of God on earth. Hebrews tells us he was made perfect through suffering, sinless, without fault. But to be the Savior we need, God appointed a plan, a regimen of suffering for his Son on earth. And for those who are sons and daughters in the Son, our Heavenly Father deals the same way with us. Not to destroy us, but to refine us and build us. That's why Paul told the churches, it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And we can be thankful God doesn't leave that at the level of abstraction. He gives us, in his word, living, breathing examples. People who are flesh and blood, as you and I, who walk the same ground that you and I walk, to show us what that looks like in real life, in 3D. And we're looking at four such examples together this weekend. We looked at the first last night, Joseph. We saw what God did through the bitter and profound betrayal that Joseph experienced at the hands of his own flesh and blood how God used that to mold Joseph into the man that he was and how God used Joseph in ways Joseph could never have conceived when he was a young man. We're going to look at someone a little different this morning. We're going to look at Job. And if you have a copy of Scripture, please open to the first couple of chapters of Job. You go right to the Psalms. It's the book just before I'm going to read in a little bit portions of the first chapter and of the second chapter. If we were to play a word association game and I were to say first word that pops into your mind when I say Job, you would probably think suffering. Job is a proverbial sufferer. And when Job suffers, when you and I suffer, One of the first questions that pops into the head is why? God, why did you bring this into my life? God, why did you take this from me? I didn't want to let this go. And that's not a bad question to ask because God is sovereign over all. And we trust in his goodness. But the scripture tells us before we ask the why question, there's another question you have to ask. And you can't get to the why until you ask that first question. And that first question is who? Who is at work in the world? Who is at work in your life? Once you settle the who question, everything else falls into place. That's what God was teaching Job. And so I want us to read from chapter 1, 
verse 1 down through verse 12, and then we're going to move over to chapter 2, and I'll read the first 10 verses. Before we read, let's ask God's help in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do praise you for your word. We thank you that it is your word, every syllable of it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so we know it is profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that we may be equipped and ready for every good work. And so we pray by the spirit who authored this word that you would make this word effective in our lives that you would take away all that is displeasing in your sight and that you would work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight. As we would look to our Savior, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read now from Job. We'll begin at verse 1. I'll continue down through verse 12. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house And all that he has on every side, you have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. 
Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Thus far, God's word. We are introduced to Job at the beginning of this book. We're told there was in the land of Uz a man whose name was Job. We don't exactly know where Uz is except it was east of the promised land, verse 3. And Job is not a blood descendant of Abraham, but he has the faith of Abraham in his heart. We're told in the first verse, he is blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That doesn't mean he was a perfect or sinless man, It meant that he walked carefully before God. It meant that he trusted God. It meant that he was all in for God. He is trusting God's promise. He is walking with God in obedience. And you get a little glimpse of his piety, his devotion in verse 5. After his children have spent a day of feasting, Job gets up early in the morning and he offers, verse 5, burnt offerings according to the number of them all, in case any of them had sinned in the heart. Job's heart is sensitive to sin. And God has richly blessed this man. He has a large and fruitful family. He has a wife and ten children, verse 2. And he is amazingly wealthy. You get a description of it in verse 3. There are the sheep, the camels, the oxen, the donkeys, and the servants. 
these are the stock portfolios of his day. This is how wealth was accumulated and measured. I was reading about six months ago of a couple who owned a home in Beverly Hills. It was valued at about $30 million. An entertainer came, knocked on the door. You would recognize this entertainer's name instantly. He said, I'd like to buy your home, $30 million. The couple said, I'm sorry, we're not interested in selling. He said, all right, I'll give you $70, $70 million. They said, sir, you've got a deal. They sold the property. Job had that kind of money. That's the kind of wealth Job has. And in 24 hours, it's all gone. He loses every one of his children. He loses all of his property, all of his wealth. And then in chapter 2, we read he is struck with a terrible and debilitating disease. Verse 7 of chapter 2, loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Never a moment's relief. We find him on the ash heap in chapter 2, verse 8. He has gone from top of the world to the top of the heap. Ash heaps are where the outcasts are. All that Job has left is his wife, who is embittered, and a life that is hanging by a string. But the scripture does more for us than to describe what is happening to Job on earth. It's telling us what's going on behind the veil in heaven. Here is God in royal splendor in the courts of heaven. And here is Satan among the sons of God, the angels coming into the presence of God. And the scripture tells us that what is happening on earth begins in heaven. Now Job can't see this. And he never does. God never gives him an explanation, even at the end of the book. But we do. And God gives us just a glimpse, a peek behind the veil, so we can understand the bigger picture. To make sense of our lives, to understand the God who is in heaven. And scripture tells us that to understand Job's calamity, this incredible suffering and loss that cascades upon Job. You have to understand not simply Job, you've got to understand God, you've got to understand Satan. If you're going to understand suffering, if you're going to understand God's purposes in suffering, you not only look at earth, you've got to look to heaven. And scripture is the only book that will tell you the truth about heaven so that you can live on earth. 
So that's what I want us to look at this morning. What do we see from heaven? What do we see from earth? And we begin in heaven. And we see in the first place Satan and we see God. What do you need to know about Satan? What do you need to know about God to make sense of what doesn't make sense on earth? Well, here's Satan. The problem in the church is that we make too much of Satan and we make too little of Satan. And here are four things the scripture tells us about Satan that we need to know. In the first place, who is he? He's an angel. He's not God. He's not a human being. He is an angel. He appears among the sons of God who present themselves before the Lord. He stands in submission before the Almighty God. He is a powerful creature. He is an intelligent creature, but he is just a creature. And he bows the knee to God. He's an angel, and he is wicked, tremendously wicked. Not all angels are wicked. Some are good, but Satan is evil. And that is wrapped up in his name. Satan is not his given name. It is a title. It means the accuser. And he lives up to that name. When God asks him about Job, he first says in chapter 1, verse 9, Does Job God fear God for no reason? Stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, he will curse you to your face. Chapter 2, verse 4, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand, touch his bone and flesh, he will curse you to your face. What's, what's Satan's accusation? Well, of course Job serves you, God. He only loves you because you have given him all that good stuff. The money, the property, that nice big family. He doesn't love you. He loves the stuff you gave him. You take away that stuff and he will curse you to your face. And that will expose Job and his so-called piety for what it really is. That's Satan's accusation. What does he really want? What is Satan's end game? He wants Job to renounce God to curse God. He wants Job to be as miserable as Satan is. Satan is a condemned, hopeless creature. That's where he wants Job to be as well. So he is an angel. He is wicked. And he is very powerful. We're told in chapter 1, verse 7, he goes to and fro on the earth from walking up and down in it. You've seen at the zoo, lions in their enclosures, and they're pacing, these powerful animals pacing, and you're so glad there's a screen or a moat or something between you and it. 
And what do we see Satan doing in this passage? He is able to summon marauding bands, to bring down lightning and wind from heaven, to bring wasting disease into the body of Job. He is an instrument of suffering, of sickness, of misery, and of death. And he doesn't bat an eye to do it. He is an angel who is wicked, who is powerful, and he is crafty. He knows exactly where to touch Job, and he knows exactly how and when to touch Job. These children, Job gets up early in the morning to pray for them and to sacrifice them for them, and Satan says, I'm going to take every one of them. The health and the vigor that Job had used to serve God, he's going to strike Job there. And notice how Satan turns the screw. Here is a day when all the children are together and they are feasting and Satan takes their lives in an instant. That day of feasting becomes a day of mourning. And then as you read on the verses we passed over in chapter 1, he then takes Job's servants and his animals before he takes his children, wave after wave, and he times the announcements. He wants Job to wash up on the shores of despair. He is overwhelming Job with this loss. And then there's his wife. Her counsel to Job in chapter 2, verse 9, is curse God and die. Do you hear the voice of Satan? I'm not saying Job's wife was a witting instrument of Satan. You remember after the apostle Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus then began for the first time to predict his suffering, his betrayal, and his death. And what did Peter do? He took him aside and said, Lord, this will never be. You remember what Jesus said? Get behind me, Satan. Peter, I hear the voice of Satan in those words. He is tempting me from the cross through you. And Satan is tempting Job to curse God and die through his wife. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. So that's who Satan is. But then there's God. What does the scripture show us about God? Two things in particular. In the first place, God is absolutely sovereign. God is utterly sovereign. Satan comes into the presence of God as a subject. He comes in complete submission. And whatever Satan does, he does by the permission of God. 
He cannot step an inch outside the boundaries that God has set for him. Chapter 1, verse 12, Behold, all that he has is in your hand only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. Chapter 2, verse 6, Behold, he is in your hand only. Spare his life. And it's not Satan who starts this. Did you notice that Satan doesn't provoke God? In both cases, it is God who takes the first step. Chapter 1, verse 8, have you considered my servant Job? Chapter 2, verse 3, have you considered my servant Job? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. God is absolutely sovereign. And the second thing that is stamped on us in this scripture is that God is absolutely good. God at every point is proud of Job. He delights in Job. He is showcasing Job as an example of the grace and mercy of God. He is is holding Job in the palm of his hand. He is saying, Satan... Look at what I've done with this sinner. I have rescued him from your clutches and your kingdom. And look at what a beautiful example of redeemed humanity he is. And God is going to show Satan that Job doesn't love God because of all the stuff. He's going to show Satan Job loves God because of who God is. Because God is worthy of that love. And it will redound to the glory of the grace of God. Did you notice in these chapters how often we see God's name, Lord, in capital letters? You know, that's not a misprint in your Bibles. That's deliberate. These are really the only two chapters where we see that name of God again and again in this book. That's God's covenant name. And when God reveals himself as Lord, as Jehovah, as Yahweh, He says, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the God on scene in these first two chapters of Job. That's the God who's speaking to Satan. That's the God who is ordering all of these events in the life of his servant Job. He is sovereign and he is good. So there's the view from heaven. Here is Satan and here is God. What does this tell us this morning? You may never know in any given trial, big or small, one that affects the rest of your life or one that just affects the morning. You may never know what's going on. 
but the scripture tells you you need to pull back the veil. And though you may not know all the details, here is what you do know. There is always more going on in your life than will ever meet the eye. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can't live the Christian life unless you understand this point. What does God show you from behind the veil? He shows you Satan. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. Satan wants to destroy you. He will stop at nothing to do it. And the scripture constantly warns us of his malice and of his temptations. Paul writes, we are not unaware of his schemes. Are you aware of his schemes? But you can't look only at Satan. You have to look beyond Satan to God. What is God calling you to know about him, especially in time of trial? What have we read of God? Who is he? God is not idle. He is on his throne. God is not reacting to Satan. Satan makes a move. God makes a move. God doesn't share Satan's suspicion about you, believer. God is for you. God is working out his purpose in your life down to the detail. And what is he doing? He is bringing glory to his grace. He is drawing out your trust in him and your love for him. And you only know this through the word of God. That's why we have to be in the word of God. Always. Because you don't get this anywhere else. We walk, Paul says, by faith and not by sight. And then Job reminds us that there is a line drawn between God and all who stand against him, and that line runs through this world. And you either stand with Satan against God or you stand with God. And there's no in-between. There is no neutrality. And there will come a day when every man, woman, and child, and angel will stand before God and give an account. And Job finds himself with God. Not because Job was a good person, but Job is a sinner saved by grace, by the goodness of this God. And we see that in chapter 1, verse 5. Here is Job getting up before the sun rises, and he is offering sacrifices. 
What did sacrifices mean? They were God's way of training his people of old to look to Jesus Christ. God was saying, I save sinners through the blood of a sacrifice. And it was pointing the way to the sacrifice, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Job, you understand, is trusting in the one that God would provide, Jesus Christ. That's what made Job the man that he was. It was Christ. And that's how you stand with God. Not because you're a better person than other people, but because you are clinging to the obedience and the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Are you doing that? Well, there's the view from heaven. What do things look like on earth? Well, here is suffering Job. And he doesn't know what we know. He knows God. He is trusting God through the work of Christ to come. How does Job respond to all of this? And there are two things we see about faith's response to trials like this. And the first thing Job does is he confesses the sovereignty of God. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. He fell on the ground and worshipped, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 10. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? You see, Job knows what's going on. It's not the wind, it's not the lightning, it's not the Sabaeans, it's not the Chaldeans, it's not even Satan who has taken these things from him. Job knows God is on his throne. Job knows God is working his purpose out. It is the Lord who brings good, it is the Lord who brings calamity. And he submits himself to God. He bows himself before God. He does not shake his fist against God. He trusts God. And speaking of God, using his covenant name, says everything. God, you are good. You are merciful. I do not understand what is going on, but I will not let go what I know of you. And so he confesses the sovereignty of God and he casts himself on God. And that brings us to the second response of faith. He confesses God's sovereignty and then he worships God. Verse 20 of chapter 1, he fell on the ground and worshiped. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now understand Job knows full well what has happened. And he is feeling everything deeply. He doesn't say, well, this doesn't really mean anything. This is all an illusion. It doesn't matter. 
He tore his robe, verse 20, and shaved his head. He is mourning, and in the tears of mourning, he worships God. He knows that he is helpless. He knows that he is weak. And he knows that everything that he has has come from God. And his response is to worship. Even in the tears, even in the sorrow and the grief, Job will worship God because he trusts him. He knows who he is. He does not understand what is happening, but he understands who God is. As we come to a close, what does this say to you and to me? You know, the first thing Job tells us, and there's much more to this, to this story, is that the best of Christians are not exempt from the worst of trials. Sometimes God calls his people to go through deep, deep valleys. And you cannot say by looking at what happens in a person's life, ooh, that person, they must be on the outs with God. You can't work your way from an event to their heart. And sometimes God brings things like this into his servant's life for nothing they have done. So the issue isn't, may these things come? Because they may and perhaps will. The issue is, how do you respond when they do come? When trial and suffering and calamity break into your life, what will you do? I don't think it's read much anymore. I had to read it as a senior in high school. It was a modern retelling of the book of Job, Archibald MacLeish, J.B. And in that play, that modern retelling, at the very end, the Job character, J.B., he walks away from God after all that suffering, and he decides he's going to find meaning in his wife, and in the world. Well, that's not the book of Job. But it does tell you something. Every trial will either drive you closer to God or it will drive you farther from God. It will never leave you in the same place. And in your trials, maybe they are very present with you today. Maybe they will come tomorrow. God is saying, before they come, or in the heat of those trials, you remember two things. You look to my servant Job and you remember you are weak and you are undeserving. And you look to me and you remember I am sovereign and I am good beyond conception. 
And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, remember this, suffering is never getting what you deserve. Trials are never getting what you deserve. Only a Christian can say that. And the reason only Christians can say that is because through faith we say Jesus Christ has got everything that I deserve. When he hung on that cross, accused and mocked and condemned, as he bore on those holy shoulders the weight of the sins of every one of his people, as the wrath of God was poured out in full upon him, he took the curse. And all you get from Jesus Christ, believer, is blessing. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus has died. He has been raised. He is at the right hand of God interceding for you. And sometimes those blessings come in the thick of awful trials. God works great good in moments like these. So what do you do? You run to God. You trust him when you don't understand. You worship him, even in tears. And you glorify him because you know that he is making you more and more like the son he loves preciously. A love that is yours, given before the foundation of the world and demonstrated for a watching world at the cross of Christ. That's why we draw near again and again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how we praise you that you are a God who infinitely transcends our understanding, that you are all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, and you are all-good. Father, whether life is going well or whether we don't understand what's going on in our lives, would you draw us closer to yourself? Would you give us the grace to look to you in Jesus Christ, to respond in worship, and to know that you are working all things together for good, to those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It's all right.